Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Uh, Kurt Motzinger, uh, who's just up here, one of our elders, him and Carrie just got back for their, from their honeymoon, and so that's why he had to read such a long scripture passage. They, he's had a couple weeks off, and so you can, you can kind of understand after listening to that, though, why some of you are familiar with the Veggie Tales, Veggie Tales story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they actually just name them Rack, Shack, and Benny. And so I probably could have helped you out, Kurt, and shortened it to Rack, Shack, and Benny because it says it enough, but at least you know who the story's about, right? So talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've got to be careful, though, because like I said, we've got the Veggie Tale story that some of us are familiar with. There's a tendency that we have. We get, we get this way a lot at Christmas time. But these stories that we hear a lot, these stories that we're very familiar with, these are very popular stories. If you grew up in the church and went to Sunday school, if you, know, you, you watch the, the children's TV shows on some of these things, these are very familiar stories to a lot of us. But we've got to be careful with familiar stories. Because a lot of times with familiar stories, the tendency is to settle into the familiar and we kind of turn our minds off, don't we? I actually did a study on this. Uh, I believe the study actually related to Christmas carols. But when people listen to music, I, forgive me because I didn't actually do my research, so I'm just going to make up the statistics. But, but when people listen to music, when it's a song they're familiar with, especially with a Christmas carol, their mind actually turns off and they go into autopilot, and they don't even think about what they're singing. I believe that the number is like seven times or something like that. Once you've heard a song seven times, you're familiar enough with the song that you no longer think about what you're singing. Isn't that kind of funny? And it's interesting to me because I used to be a worship pastor, and so when I led worship during Christmas time, everybody loves Christmas carols, right? We, well, maybe not some of you, but Everybody says they love Christmas carols, but when you lead worship during a Christmas series and you start playing a Christmas carol, the hands go from here, everybody's worshiping, to all of a sudden down here because our minds all of a sudden we start thinking, huh, I never finished my shopping list for so-and-so and I never finished because we go on autopilot, right? But that's the danger that we have when we get into some of these stories. Ah, oh, man, I know how that story ends, autopilot. Right? Did you, were you guys listening to what Kurt read up here, or did you go into autopilot? Right? We have a tendency to settle into autopilot when it comes to these familiar stories. We can't do that. We can't picture cute little tomatoes and cucumbers and asparagus going into burning fires and, you know, all of that stuff. We can't do it because there is a lesson that we have to be learned, and it is a very important lesson. I'm going to be straight with y'all from the beginning. I'm going to get a little political today. I know that that makes some people bristle. Other people are like, yeah, and then I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and you're going to be like, no, that's not the political I thought you meant. 
there are a lot of politics and, and both sides of the political aisle that pointed to this scripture story not too long ago. And unfortunately, this story kind of became the Christian's permission to flip the bird to the government and to do whatever we want. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were like, Nebuchadnezzar, you can't tell me what to do. But that's not the lesson that's taught here in this story. And we've got to be so very careful when we apply lessons from Scripture stories that God never taught. Okay? That's my preface there. I'm going to make some of y'all mad. The goal really is to make everybody on both sides of the political spectrum angry at me. Um, that's a really good church growth strategy, I've heard, and um, from people who no longer have churches. But I figure if I'm making everybody equally upset on both sides, I'm doing a pretty good job. That's what Jesus did, right? So we've got to learn what God teaches, not what culture teaches, but what God teaches about what Shadrach, Meshach, can, can show, and Abednego, can show us about adversity and about how we can walk through the fire. How do we walk through the fire with God? Because Scripture promises that as we walk through the fire, God's going to burn off all that junk on us, right? He's going to burn off the stuff that doesn't make or that makes us look less like Jesus so that when we come out of the fire, we look more like Jesus. But in order to do that, we got to walk through it God's way. We can't just, that, you can't just say, like, oh, I'm walking through a fire and do it any old way and expect to come out on the other side looking like Jesus. We've got to do it God's way. So here's how. Your three main points for the de- today. And last week, I actually spoiled this for you and told you that these are going to be your three main points for the entire month. So for those of you note takers, I just made your job that much easier. You can go home and type them up real neatly and just bring in your blank sheet of paper and take any additional notes. These are the three main points. So we are going to look at the promise. And what did we say last week? The promise is that we will walk through adversity, right? All throughout Scripture. Jesus teaches in the Gospels. You know, we've got lots of those promises that Christians love to name and claim. These aren't very common name and claim it promises, right? Yes, we will have trouble in the world. I'm claiming it, Jesus. We don't like naming and claiming that. But if you want one of the most consistent promises God gives us throughout scripture in this world you will have trouble that's his word not mine he promises us that so how do Shadrach Meshach and Abednego how do they face adversity then they face the storm how do they do that how can we do that and then they hold fast to their anchor so just a recap of last week this is this is Jesus's template right I, told, I warned you, be careful with templates. But this is a pretty consistent template that Jesus gives us to how we face adversity. And this is what Jesus tells us in John 16, The promise is that in this world you will have trouble. But when we face the storm, Jesus says, take courage. He tells all of his disciples, don't face it like a coward. Don't face it shaking in your boots. Take courage and face the storm. And then we hold on to the anchor. And what is the anchor? Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That's not the anchor, though. We don't want to cling to the wrong thing. The anchor is that because Jesus Christ overcame the world, he is with us. Through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we now have access to God himself in the Holy Spirit to walk with 
through any adversity that comes our way. So back to Rack, Shack, and Benny. The promise. First, let's look at the adversity that they face. Kind of a duh question, right? What's the adversity that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face in this story? Duh, <laughs> right? We all kind of know, but be careful. Be careful, because lots of times, familiar stories, we rush to judgment and we think we know what the adversity is, but don't miss it. This is the adversity. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. This is the adversity right here, this decision. It gets very easy, again, with familiar stories, but really with any story in the Bible. We rush to the big, right? Especially in the Western world. We love big and flashy, don't we? And so we rush to the big. What's the adversity? The fiery furnace. Uh-uh. That's not the adversity in this story. We know how the story ends. So we know what happens, and so we rush to the adversity being the fiery furnace. But well before that furnace is heated, they haven't even dumped the wood in yet, right? Well before it's heated, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face this decision. Do we go along with the crowd, or do we obey God's commands? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We talked about Jesus facing the storm. And we talked about how part of facing the storm, part of this, this point, is that you've got to face the right storm, right? You guys remember that? When we look at the fiery furnace, we, we identify the wrong storm. When we say, that, that's the adversity, the fiery furnace is the adversity, that's the wrong storm. Because that storm, the fiery furnace, is a temporal one, right? This storm, this adversity of them making a decision, that decision is an eternal decision. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the choice. Listen, y'all. There's a reason why this verse is so popular lately. And, and I, think, I think that's a God thing. Because today, I don't want to say more than any other time, pastors have a tendency to do this and it irks me, right? We act like, like this is the end-all, be-all. 
like, oh, this moment in history, we're the pioneers, and it's never been worse than it is. Stop. If you have any ideas, like study ancient Rome for five seconds, and you'll realize, oh, America's not that bad. Right? So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to say this is, you know, worse than any other time in human history. But there are scary similarities between this story and what the church is being asked to do today. Do you go along with the crowd? And we've got reasons to go along with the crowd, right? Christian, you've got reasons to go along with the crowd. Well, we'll I mean, we'll be more popular if, if we, right? And so we relax our morals. We relax our standards so that we can look more like the world, so that we can attract the world, so that we can win the world. Where's that in the Bible? Anywhere, though. Right? Over and over and over again, the church, and guys, this is from Genesis 1. Not Genesis 1. Things were perfect then. Genesis 3. This has been the call to the Christian. Right? Compromise. 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 Step back off of that holiness for just a moment and compromise. It's going to make you more popular. You'll be able to do more. It's going to get you further in life. And the church today, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is being called to compromise. So do they compromise? Or do they stand on God's promises? Because that fiery furnace, for as scary as it is, like we said, it's temporal. It's a moment. The fiery furnace that's waiting for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and us, if we compromise our morals, that should scare us a whole lot more. Because that is the real storm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. And so they faced the right storm. They didn't face the fiery furnace. Do you, do you notice that? They faced the real storm. And just like Jesus told his disciples, they faced it courageously. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I say that every week, I know. But this is one of my favorites. I love their response to Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, first, I got to point something out here, because this is the part where people are like, yeah, look at Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego being like, forget this. They were libertarians, right? No government. Yeah, we don't need government. But be careful, because that's not, and actually, I, I have studied this a lot, not just for this reading, but I like this story, and so I've, I've looked into it a lot. And if you study the story, if you go back and you look at people who are familiar with this culture, with this cultural moment, with the original language that this was written in, every single one of them will tell you that in no way, shape, or form were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being disrespectful to Nebuchadnezzar. I know when we read the English, it kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? You can kind of read into it that there's this like, forget you, king. My God can save me. I'm not worried about you. 
but they didn't have a Brooklyn accent because they weren't from Brooklyn. And that was my Brooklyn accent, if you guys didn't notice. But that, that's not actually there. In the original language, they, they addressed him with respect. And that's how Christians are called. Because here's the problem that we have. If we read into this story that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being disrespectful to, to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, forget this, we don't need this, right? It goes against almost every other teaching the Bible gives us about the government, right? Because the Bible teaches. And listen, y'all, we know this as Christians. Does the Bible contradict itself? It doesn't. And so if we see something that looks like a contradiction, we got to look into it. You know, the, I know the, origin, the usual tendency is just to run away from it and just pretend it doesn't exist. But study it. Look into it. See why. Because if you study this story, you'll find out there was nothing disrespectful about what they said. But in the New Testament alone, uh, you can look it up for yourself. Romans 13, 1 through 7. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25. Even Jesus. In Matthew 22 and Mark 12, Jesus gives his popular teaching that people like to twist into whatever they want it to say. Render to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's, right? What's Jesus saying? What's Paul saying? What's Peter saying? They're saying, give the government what's due to them. Honor, respect, submit to the government, right? And that's exactly what Shadrach, and Me Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to screw this up all day. That's exactly what they do. They submit to the government. We don't like to read that into this, though. Because what do they say? What, what, this is what they do. They approach the king, and respectfully, they say, King, you're asking us to do something that our God has forbidden us to do. So we can't do it. So forget you. There's nothing you can do about it. Nope. That's not what they say. That's what we try to do today. But that's not what they say. What do they say? So we submit to your authority, and we submit and accept the punishment that you have laid out. We don't like that teaching. How many of y'all want to fight right now? You're just like, come on. It's making hair on your neck bristle, and you're ready to go to a political rally or something. I don't know. But that's what they do. You don't like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Okay. Look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? This is unfair, guys. I didn't do anything wrong. This isn't fair. He doesn't, does he? He says, okay. And, and I mean, Jesus has got it a thousand times worse because he really didn't do anything wrong, right? But over and over again in Scripture, we're going to read it again next week. I'm just going to warn you. We see it over and over again. It's not forget you. It's not I don't have to listen to you. It's I submit to you. And sometimes submission. Now look, if you are called to do something that God specifically tells you not to do, you must say no to that. You must stand your ground. You do not bow to an idol. It doesn't matter who tells you to. Your answer is always no. But if there's a punishment that comes with that, you accept that punishment. That's how you submit to authority. It's not popular. People will call that passivism. 
right? The church doesn't like passivism today. To speak, or to not speak is to speak, and to not act is to act, right? That's the rally cry for everybody who wants you to kick people in the face. But that's not the teaching there. Jesus calls us to submit to authority. That's where his blessing is. He doesn't call us to scream and shout at the top of our lungs. He doesn't call us to kick and cry and pout like little children when we don't get our way, right? He calls us to submit. You know, I, I really think if we look back, the pandemic and, you know, all that stuff, there are a lot of opinions flying around. I'm sure in this room alone, we probably have about 16 different opinions on all of that. But I, I, I really think that our, the Gospel House's stance on this, this is what I hope we would have done in the middle of the pandemic, but when they, the government was saying churches cannot meet in person, and, and it's, you know, they outlawed it, made it illegal. You know, there were some churches that said, okay, and, and they didn't meet in person. There were other churches who said, I'm sorry, but it says in the Bible that you shall not forsake the gathering of the saints, that you shall not forsake getting together, and so we are going to meet. Unfortunately, the way that people said that was abrasive, and in your face, and forget you, you can't tell us what to do, right? I would have loved to see a church stand up and say, look, my word tells me that we need to make a priority to meet face-to-face. I understand there are online options, and, and those are, we'll make those available, but there is something about meeting in person together that our God commands. There's something that, that happens physiologically, scientifically, within us, biologically, that when we meet together. They've actually done studies on that. Do you guys know this? My wife knows this. I wish she was in here because she could tell me what it is right now. But they've actually done studies between like in-person conversations and text message conversations. There's a physiological difference when you have a text message conversation with someone and a person-to-person conversation with someone because that's how your God made you. You need that face-to-face interaction. But when the government says you can't do it, I wish there was, a, and there probably was a church that did this, but a church, there was a church that said, we are going to meet. If you need to fine us, we gladly accept and we will pay that fine. If you need to come and arrest someone, here's Pastor Jeremy, he's the lead pastor, take him. Gladly, I'll do it. Because I feel strongly about that conviction. Because God has said in his word. Right? But it is not me throwing a fit. Now, I am thankful for our, for our country. And I'm thankful we have avenues in which, politically speaking, we can vote. We can call our state senators. Like, you can do all those things, right? But even within that... Do so humbly, right? We, Christians have just gotten this really goofy idea that, that like the Bible gives us this kind of authority that we can just throw stuff at people and call them whatever names we want. And, but at the end, as long as we say, God bless you, you know, everything goes away. That's not how it works because that's not how Jesus did it. That's, it. that's as political as I'll get today. Bad enough, right? 
Now listen, politics aside, all of this aside, it is very easy in these stories to get focused on the miracle, right? It's very easy because we know how this story ends to see God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from this fiery furnace, and not a single hair on their head is singed. They don't even smell like smoke, right? Don't forget for a second, though. Guess who didn't know how this story was going to end? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Lots of times we take that for granted. We see them, them stand up and say this, and we're like, oh, look at that, those men of great faith. They just knew they were going to be delivered, right? They manifested their promise by speaking it out, right? I get worried sometimes that the state of some churches, uber-faith churches, you know, faith it till you make it, just speak it into existence, all of that stuff. I get worried that if we saw a response like this today, you know, where Jeremy stands up and says, even if he does not, my God is strong enough to save me, but even if he does not, and there are some faith churches, ye of little faith, have faith. Well, not with that attitude, it's not going to happen. You need to speak it into existence. You need to claim it. You need to stand on the promises. You need to plead the blood. But they didn't do any of that, did they? It reminds us, you guys remember this from last week, Revelations 12, 11, and they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and as long as we don't cut it off early, and that they did not love their life even when faced with death. That's the side of that verse that doesn't get preached a whole lot. But look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Right? We talked about that Keller quote last week. Sometimes God deliver us, delivers us, or God heals us from death, but God always heals us through death. You see that here in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response? Look, King, our God will deliver us. I don't know what that looks like, though. Right? God's sovereignty and God's will, he may deliver us out of your hand through death. He may take us, but guess what? Then we get to go home. Or he may save us right here, right now. But either way, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is where we draw the line, king, and we will not compromise. Do what you will. They will not move on this point. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You remember when he stands up and faces that storm? He's unmoving. This is where we're going, and I'm not backing down. And that's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Some of you know this, but my life verse, a super depressing life verse, but my life verse is Job 13, 15. It's what I want my life to be characterized. They put a 
quote on my tombstone, this is what I want it to be. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I don't think there is greater faith in the world than that. Job's life is literally falling apart. He has lost everything. His health is failing. Everything is falling apart. And this is what he tells his friends. I trust God so much that even if it's his will to destroy me, he has my hope. I have walked with God long enough. I know that all, all things that my God does are good. So if he, if it's his will to crush me, to kill me, then I know it is good. I don't know what that good is. I can't see it right now, but I know I serve a good God, and I'm going to walk in it. That's big faith, isn't it? I would take that faith any day over this name it and claim it faith. Faith that God's going to make me better. God's going to give me everything I want. Who cares? I want to trust in my God when everything's fallen apart. I want to have that kind of faith that walks through fire, that walks through storm, that walks through all of this stuff unscathed. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that can stand in front of this adversity, this decision, and say, uh-uh, I'm not moving. Because I have big faith in an even bigger God. See, our faith isn't results-oriented. At least it shouldn't be. Because God's not results-oriented. And our faith determines which storms we're going to face, right? Because if my faith is results-oriented, then the fiery furnace is the only thing I see. And Christian, can I urge you right now, if you are facing adversity, maybe the answer, I'm not saying this is a cure-all, but I'm saying maybe your answer is to stop being so results-oriented. Stop looking at the fiery furnace and start looking at the decision that needs to be made. Start looking at the compromise that you need to stop making, the line in the sand that you need to draw. Because here's the thing. When we focus our theology on happy endings, right? We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story ends happy, right? It's a happy ending. But when we focus on those happy endings, Jesus Christ, he raises from the grave, happy ending, right? When we focus on those things, those are temporal happy endings. And because of those things, we become results-driven. Oh, look, it all worked out for Job. He got twice as much back as he lost. Results. End, right? Modern day, the, our, our modern culture is really mixed up in that. We are really, really results-driven. You actually see it in the church today in modern prophecy. A lot of prophecy these days is very much like, you shall go to Nineveh, and you shall preach, and everyone will be saved. And, and like that's what we want. Tell, God, tell me where I'm going, tell me what I'm doing, and tell me how many people are going to get saved, and then I'll go do it. That's the kind of prophecy I want. But God doesn't do that. Because God isn't driven that way. There was this actually a long time ago. I woke up in the middle of the night and, and heard God speak to me. Like I audibly heard a voice say the word provo. And it was, that was it. It was like, okay. Like, all right, Lord, what do I do now? 
And so I really felt him prompt me to pray and fast for 21 days. You need to pray and fast, and at the end of 21 days, I'll give you your answer. So I did. I prayed, and I fasted, and you better believe, I, I think like Google, I probably still owe them money for how many Google searches I did. I know about every Provo city in the world um, because of that. Because I prayed, I fasted, I searched. Like, I did everything I possibly could to figure out what this means. 21 days. Fast is over. Here comes the answer, right? Nothing. Nothing. And it was like, what the heck? Like, God, I had that fun size Snicker bar, but I didn't. Th- I'm just kidding. I didn't. But I was crushed. God, what's going on here? And I remember I met with my father-in-law. We met at Panera, and I'll never forget this. I told him everything, and I, just, I told him. I said, I'm ticked. I'm mad. I thought for sure that that's what God said to me. And then I get to the end, and now I'm sitting here thinking, like, what, God, am I broken? Like, is my hearing messed up? Like, what is this? It was so real. And he told me something that I will walk out the rest of my life. He said, what I heard from you is that your dad got your attention and said something and wanted you to press in and seek after him. And that's exactly what you did. You got on your face and you sought after him with all of your heart. And I don't think he's ever going to be mad about that. And it made me realize how broken this way of thinking is. This results oriented, this end result thinking that we have. Guys, our God is a God of process. He doesn't care nearly as much about where we're going as much as he cares about who we're becoming in the process. Is actually really funny because uh, as I was typing this, uh, I was typing this on, I think it was Wednesday, and I was typing this section of my notes, and uh, Jan and I had a friend text us with something that she was going through, and it was so funny because it exactly had to do with this. And so I'd, I just copied and pasted my notes and stuck them in the, in the text message or whatever. And, but it made me think, because it's so common for us, isn't it? We love to get results-focused. And I think the reason for that is when we're results-focused, we get to the end of, of the result and we get where we're going, and then we can stop, right? All right, I made it. I don't need God anymore. Ooh, when I say it out loud like that, it sounds kind of... Right? But when it's about results, we can get to the end on our own. And isn't that how so many of us approach God? All right, God, give me the marching order. Step one, step two, step three. March, march, march. I can do it on my own. Right? Every sermon preached in the Western church gives you what? Practical steps. Right? It's a broken sermon if it doesn't have practical steps. But God doesn't work like that. I'm not saying he's impractical. But God is a God of process. Because... When we're in process, who do we constantly have to rely on? Him, right? And guys, I, I, I've told you this before. This is, this is an issue me and Tim Keller disagree on. Tim Keller's my like, hero pastor, but him and I butt heads on this. We don't agree on this. I see God as a God who never wants to let go of my hand. 
When I walk with my father, I see him as a father who wants me to hold on to him, and he will walk with me through absolutely everything. There are some Christians who think that God is more like a coach on the sideline, right? All right, Jeremy, here's the play. Smacks my butt, and I go in there, and I do my best. I don't think God's like that, though. I don't, I don't see what the purpose of the Holy Spirit would be if that's the case. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us for me to do my own thing. That doesn't make any sense to me. For me to lean on him when I need him, for me to lean on things, him when things get hard, I, I just don't, that, that doesn't make sense to me. If I have access to God himself living inside of me, I'm going to lean on him all the time. Even when I'm doing things I know how to do. But we can never stop walking with him. We never stop, and we all know that as Christians, right? Because God's process is eternal. He's not worried about who, who you're going to become in one month. Like after a month, you're going to look like Jesus, and you've graduated, you get a gold star, on to the next one, right? It's a lifetime process of being made like Jesus, which means our hand can never come out of his. We are always walking with him. But praise God. We talked about this last week. We have a God. He's called us to this process, this long and hard and trying and difficult process. It's hard to get rid of yourself, isn't it? Anybody care to admit that, or am I the only one? It's hard. It's hard to get rid of Jeremy so that I can be made like Jesus. But the great thing is, God has promised that he will be with us every step of that process. That's the anchor. Right? We spoiled it last week. I gave you all these points, and so it's kind of anticlimactic. It's like, oh, yeah, knew that was coming. Yep, there it is. But it doesn't make it any less true. God is with us in the process. And he shows up for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was, not th was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Like I said, I've studied this passage a lot, and there's one thing every single biblical scholar will tell you about this. There's this fancy word if you want to, you know, impress all your friends at your next dinner party. The fancy word for this is Christophany, right? You can go home and be like, yeah, remember that Christophany in Daniel 3.25? And really impress a lot of people. But a Christophany, theologically, is the pre-incarnate Jesus, right? So Jesus was the word of God from the very beginning. Jesus put on flesh, became a human, was sent down to earth by God, right? Became Jesus. But there are these weird instances in the Old Testament where God shows up. Now, here's what's interesting. We are told all throughout Scripture that no one can look upon the face of God and live, right? Because if we do, he's too holy. He's, he's too, I mean, our minds would just, like, literally. And so no one can look on the face of God, yet... There are instances in the Old Testament where these people, Moses being one example, goes into the Holy of Holies and meets with God face to face, which makes us ask the question, 
wait, how could Moses meet with God face to face when anybody who sees the face of God dies? Because of Christophanes. So Christophanes are before Jesus was incarnate and came down in the flesh. There are appearances of Jesus where he comes down and interacts with people before he was born. Those are called Christophanies. That's your fancy word. This is one of them, and this is probably one of the most clear. One of the biggest ways you can tell when you're reading and you see a Christophany is because lots of times you'll have uh, somebody interact with an angel. One happens in the book of Joshua, right before the Israelites are about to take the promised land and, and fight Jericho. Uh, Joshua meets with the, the uh, commander of the Lord's armies, and Joshua bows down and worships this commander. And any time in scripture, when a human bows down and worships an angel, the angel immediately says, no, 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 no. Get up, don't worship me. I'm not the one you worship. You worship him, not me, right? There was one angel who didn't agree with that, and he got the boot from heaven. So we don't want to make that mistake, and all of the angels know that now. So they're very quick to say, no, 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 no. When Joshua bows down to the host or the commander of the Lord's armies, though, he does not say, to get up, Jesus, because Jesus is worthy of our worship. Here, this little clue there at the end, the fourth is like a son of the gods. Jesus, everyone says that this is a Christophany. So who shows up in the middle of this fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It is the same God who promised that this is exactly where he would be in the scripture verse we ended on last week, Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Do not learn the wrong lesson from this. Remember, we're not focusing on end results, right? God doesn't focus on end results, so we as his disciples shouldn't focus on end results. God will sometimes deliver us from the fire. But the promise here is that he will always be with us in the midst of the fire. God is strong enough to save us, but even if he does not in this life, he has already saved us and delivered us into the life to come. Jesus Christ stepped into the eternal flame of God's wrath, the eternal flame of hell and death and the grave, so that he could once and for all deliver us from ever having to experience that fire. It's not about a burning furnace or being saved from that fire. It's about Jesus. Everything points to Jesus, saving us from the eternal fire. So the question is, how do we know that God sends adversity for our benefit and not to hurt us? How can we be sure of it? Because Jesus showed us on the cross that he would do absolutely anything to walk with us through adversity. 
Jesus proved that once and for all. Whatever you're walking through right now, whatever adversity you're facing or have faced or will face, I can't give you the exact reason. I can't tell you exactly why God sent that fire. But I can tell you what the reason is not. It's not that God doesn't care. You're suffering right now. You're going through something. It is not because God doesn't care. Jesus Christ. And guys, Christianity is the only religion that gives this. Every other religion can point to Isaiah 43. They don't have Isaiah 43, but they can point to a kind of Isaiah 43 and say, oh, God loves you and he hugs you and he's going to be there. Christianity is the only one. God doesn't have to point to a Bible verse, right? God points to his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, how do you know that this adversity is going to prosper you? How do you know that this fire that you're walking through right now is going to work together for your good and for the good of all those who come after you? Look at the cross. Look at my son. Jesus Christ turned the most horrific event of human history, the greatest abortion of injustice. I'm sorry, of justice. (laughs) The biggest injustice. And he turned it together for the good of all mankind. The same God promises that he can do the same thing with your adversity if you let him. Lean into him. Hold on to his hand. Never let go. Hold on to your anchor. And he will never stop holding on to you. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.